Flying a single-engine airplane over water beyond gliding range is something many pilots won't do. Flying a single across the Atlantic Ocean from the U.S. to Germany takes a special kind of pilot and a special brand of planning. But taking a piston single across the Pacific, solo, is really a challenge, especially when the pilot encounters a thunderstorm. We'll meet a pilot who did that on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 7 of Flying Magazine's I Laughed podcast, brought to you by Avemco Insurance. I'm your host, Rob Ryder. On today's show, I'll be talking with Bernard Wolf, who ferried a Piper Archer to Germany to sell it, an uneventful flight. He then bought a Cicada Trinidad and set out across the Pacific so he'd have an airplane to fly at his new job in Guam. It was on that flight that he encountered weather that he thought was going to kill him. We'll get right to it after this word from the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. Stability. If you're like most pilots, that's a word that's important. And it's important to Avemco Insurance. They've been protecting GA pilots for 60 years and have been rated A++ for stability. You'll instantly save 5% off your annual premium just by being an iLaft listener. Save up to 25% with the Avemco Safety Rewards Program. To learn more, call 800-338-8705 or go to avemco.com flying. Now, I learned about flying from that. Bernard Wolf, welcome to I Learned About Flying From That, and I'm excited to hear your story. I hope you're having a good day today. I sure have. Thank you. Your odyssey of uh, the magazine article called Panic Over the Pacific is only one part of your story because you are not a newcomer to uh, flying uh, across the oceans. But even before that, you really grew up in an area where thunderstorms were of particularly uh, particular importance to you. Am I correct about that? Well, that's correct, yeah. Well, I, I got my all my advanced licenses after having learned to fly in Germany, my primary training, all my advanced licenses, IFR, commercial, multi-engine, and all this, I got in Amarillo. And Amarillo is kind of the west end of Tornado Alley. So... Uh, the main weather you have to deal there with is thunderstorms and over the plains, so thunderstorms tend to be very, very severe. So I got told from the beginning that so thunderstorms are to be avoided at all costs, that they will tear the airplane apart, that there is hail which can reach out 10 miles or more from the anvil of a thunderstorm. And essentially what my flight instructor impressed on me Obviously, well-meaning is that if you fly in a thunderstorm, you're more or less dead. And oh. in that area, that is probably somewhat true. You still developed quite a skill for flying with all of your advanced ratings. You still went to a single-engine airplane and flew across the Atlantic. Can you tell me about that? Well, that was an airplane I had uh, bought and really done most of my training in. It was a Piper Cherokee Archer, uh, PA-28-181. Uh, and I've done most of my training in it, and I 
I decided after flying it for about four years, it's time to get something a little bit more advanced. So I needed the money for it. And I found out that I can get considerably more back at the time, which was in 1989, that I could get considerably more for it if I sell it in Europe. And since I'm from Germany originally, I decided uh, to fly it over to Germany and sell it there. So that gave me probably about forty, fifty thousand dollars more for the airplane than I would have gotten in the U.S. So that would have given that gave me a considerable profit and allowed me then to buy a complex, more advanced airplane after that. And it was then, if if that's the airplane that you used for a great deal of your training, that was well equipped in terms of communications gear and navigational gear. Is that correct? Well, I had. Uh, I had full IFR equipment in it and a pretty good two-axis autopilot. And uh, it was back then, back in the time of Laurent. There was no GPS yet. So flights over the Atlantic had Laurent coverage, probably 60% of the way. And since the distances are really not that humongous, actually, over the Atlantic, 60% of Laurent coverage was really good. The rest could be flown with ADF and that reckoning. And you had a, you also had an additional skill set and communication set because, like uh, other pilots I know who are communications geeks, uh, myself included, were amateur radio operators, and that played an important part for you, didn't it? Well, it did in a way because I used uh, ham radio just with a trailing wire antenna for <laughs> HF. But back then I was so cheap, I didn't want to invest in an antenna tuner and I thought I can just set uh, reel the antenna in and out to get tuned. But that really did not work out quite as well <laughs> as I thought. And I had occasionally to rely on airliners flying above and there were plenty because the Atlantic is very busy. There were plenty of airliners to relay my position reports. The position reports were are normally given and have been for many years on HF frequencies uh, that are that are not necessarily line of sight, but with VHF, it's line of sight. So you were able to call an airliner, give that airliner your full position report, and the airliner would then relay on your behalf? Yeah, and they were very eager to do that. That happened about half of the time. Half the position reports I was able to get the HF ham radio tuned properly to give the position reports, but there were occasional ones where I had to use the airliners. One of them was a British Airways, uh, call sign Speedbird, which was for British Airways. Uh, it was the 747 was flying overhead, and I called him for a position report, and he asked me what type of airplane it is, and I told him it's a PA-28. <laughs> he said, PA-28, isn't that a single? And I said, <laughs> Yeah, it is. And he said, well, now I know there are some people more crazy than me. <laughs> well, but you weren't crazy. You were well prepared. Obviously, uh, it is not like a flight over the Pacific, but you, in fact, still had to have significantly addition, uh, significant additional fuel capabilities because one of the legs was still way beyond the endurance of a normal PA-28, I think one of the legs was seven hours? One of the legs was seven hours. So that was about three hours more than my regular endurance. So yes, I had uh, fuel drums installed 
in Florida by a company in Vero Beach uh, with, with a temporary uh, permit for the ferry flight. And that is the same company I later used uh, to install uh, the fuel drums for the Pacific flight too. They were very familiar with ferry flying. They were actually a company which had instructors for that and which had done a lot of uh, transoceanic ferry flying back in the day. How many fuel stops did you have on the way over to your destination and what was your destination? Uh, my destination was Straubing, a little town in Germany. And the fuel stops I had is I flew it up the East Coast uh, in New Brunswick in Canada. Mm -hmm. The airplane was inspected by uh, Transport Canada, which is a requirement for being cleared for transatlantic uh, trans flights. And then I flew it up uh, to Newfoundland. I stayed there one night overnight, and then the next day I started the Atlantic flight. We stops in the Azores and then from the Azores to Porto in Portugal. I choose that southern routes, which had longer oceanic legs, but it has usually better weather than the northern route. And when I was in Newfoundland, I met a lot of other ferry pilots who was flying airplanes over there. And one guy had an A36 Bonanza, and he also had extra fuel tanks. He also decided to stop in the Azores. But since the tailwind was so good, he actually decided on the spur of the moment to just fly the different route to, for, to forego the Azores and just fly it all the way straight from Newfoundland to Ireland. Your confidence in your flight across the Atlantic gave you the the confidence to fly across the Pacific. But what was the reason that you chose to fly across the Pacific? I had taken a position, a work position in Guam, island of Guam, and I decided, well, I can take my airplane with me. Back then, it was, it was a TP-21 Trinidad, which was a decently high-performing single, not very fast, 250 horsepower, but uh, very good range, normally 1,000 nautical miles plus reserve. So I decided I can take that airplane with me and then from Guam I can fly to the other Pacific Islands in Micronesia, which I later did, like Truck and Yap and Ponape, which I thought would be quite interesting. And I had planned to work there for about two or three years and then I actually wanted to complete an around-the-world flight with the airplane because uh, that was something I back then had always wanted to do. Unfortunately, that didn't work out that way, and mainly due to the fact that the maintenance in Guam was uh, poor to non-existent for single-engine airplanes. I had uh, airline mechanics who had... Um, AP license. I had to ask them to do the annual for me. And he just, they just did that, but they just kind of looked at it and did the annual. And I certainly didn't have the face after that anymore in the airplane's mechanical integrity to fly it around the rest of the world. So when I went back to the US after about five years, I had the airplane actually containerized and shipped back to California. Tell me about your preparation for that Pacific flight and how it eventually led you into that moment of panic. Well, uh, 
I went again to Florida, had uh, tanks installed. I got a big folder from ferry pilots experiences who had done that before which they had collected at the place in Vero Beach in Florida. Back then, the place had a contract with Piper where they did all the ferry flying for Piper. And uh, I then flew it back to Amarillo again, where I, back, where I lived still back then. And uh, from, from, then, from there to Santa Barbara, stayed there a few days. And from Santa Barbara, I decided to start the flight uh, to Hawaii. The airplane was, I had to wait for favorable winds to go to Hawaii because even with extra fuel tanks, that is the longest leg. It is at least 14 hours with favorable winds with that type of airplane. And so if I had a, if a major headwind, I can't do it. I had heard from people being stuck for several weeks in Santa Barbara waiting for favorable winds to Hawaii to fly over the Pacific. The airplane had to be 20% over growth with a special permit. And it certainly showed on climb. I mean, the climb was uh, extremely sluggish, obviously. Well, let me, ask, was... let me ask you, Santa Barbara was the, the starting point. Was that the best for great circle routing to get Hawaii to Hawaii? That is correct. That is the shortest uh, great circulating. I think San Francisco is about just five miles less okay, to Hawaii, but San Francisco is a very busy airport. and uh, You could use up I a decided, lot of fuel on the ground waiting to take exactly, off. That's what, I, that's what I thought. That was exactly my thoughts. And so I decided to fly from Santa Barbara, which is just five miles more, but I saved that in taxiing and hassle. So that was uh, easier. And also the fuel is obviously was way cheaper in Santa Barbara <laughs> than it would have been in San Francisco. Indeed. Your takeoff day came. What time of the day, afternoon, evening, whatever, did you actually launch on this flight? I, I took off in the evening shortly after sunset so that I would arrive in Hawaii until daylight hours because it obviously would make it easier. And I decided to do that on each flight where I had to land on islands. Hawaii, Hawaii is a big island, so it's harder to miss. But... <laughs> Uh, it would make it easier to find the islands I saw it in daylight. So I took off and flew the first part of the flight through the night, and then I would arrive in Hilo uh, in the just not too long before noon in the morning, around 10 or 11-ish. I don't recall the exact time. As I remember the movie with James Stewart on this, called The Spirit of St. Louis, when he did that flight, he was unable to sleep the night before. Were you able to sleep during the day so you started fresh in the evening on that time, on that flight? Yeah, luckily I have very little problems with that. I'm someone who can sleep easily. So yeah, I mean, I had been sightseeing on Hawaii a few days before, I mean, in Santa Barbara, and then I just decided to, uh, it's, everything is clear and I can take off. I took off about, I think it was about uh, 10 o'clock in the evening. When did things start to go wrong? Uh, they started to go wrong on the second leg from Hawaii to Kiribati to Tarawa. The first leg to Hawaii was completely uneventful and again raised my confidence. There was absolutely no problem. But uh, the problems would occur, the problems that scared me really bad would occur on the second leg from Hawaii to Tarawa, where I had to cross the equator. 
And you were told by a briefer that there would be potential thunderstorms, and and you uh, you were you were asking him then when how long do I have to wait before I w- won't encounter those? Yeah, that is correct. I they obviously got an in-person briefing at the airport in Hilo, and the briefer was familiar with occasionally people flying so small airplanes. It doesn't happen very, didn't happen very often back in the days that someone flew a single maybe twice or three times a year. But uh, I talked with him and he showed me the maps and there was like this uh, big area of clouds penciled in all along the equator, and I'm asked what kind of weather is it there, and he said, well, it's mostly uh, just cumulus with occasional embedded CBs. And being very wary of thunderstorms, based from my previous training and all what I had heard, I got really scared when I heard CBs, and I asked him, well, if there are CBs, I'm not going to fly. How long will I have to wait until there are none. And he told me and explained it to me that this was the intertropical convergence zone and there are CBs basically 365 uh, days a year. So I will not find a time where there are no CBs along my way at all. So he said, if I wait until there are no CBs, I just have to wait forever and I will never be able to complete that flight. And he said that on that day, it was not any worse than it usually is. I had read that book from Captain Buck about weather flying. Yes. And he talked in that book also about the intertropical convergence zone and how he encountered it first when he was flying as a corporate pilot, basically, to uh, Brazil. And that he also was scared the first time he encountered it, but that it wasn't really that much of a problem. But I really didn't think of that so much. I just thought CBs away. That is not necessarily very good. But harkens back to your days when you were learning to fly, when you were told thunderstorms will kill you. There's no other thought. That's right. But I decided, well, if the briefer, who is obviously very experienced, says it is really not a big deal, I guess I can chance it, especially since he said the weather is never going to be better there. Off you go from Hawaii on your way to Tarawa. And how many hours into the flight until you encountered these cumulonimbus and, and, uh, and the precipitation? The problem actually occurred relatively soon. I had about two hours maybe out of uh, Hilo. I started flying in and out of just cumulus clouds. It was occasionally a little bit of light rain in them. And what, at what altitude, Bernard, what altitude was that? I was flying, if I recall it right, I, I, I was flying at 10,000 foot. And that was because those were supposed about the best winds or it was just the best, uh, best numbers for the airplane? Uh, 10,000 foot was a compromise of the winds and the best range for the airplane flying it at 55% power. So going higher up would have given me a little bit of fuel savings, but I would have had more headwinds and the flight would have taken actually longer in the end. So 10,000 foot was pretty much the best guess, which would put me in the lower 
third probably of those uh, cumulus clouds that was flying in and out of. I did have a storm scope, so I hope that would I hope that would keep me out of the CBs. And the storm scope didn't really show anything except occasionally a discharge quite far away. And I never really at that point saw any lightning or anything. So it was really okay for the first about two to three hours. It was essentially what he had told me in and out of cumulus, but really not much else. There was really no significant turbulence or anything which was scary at that point. That happened a little bit later. And this is also very dark. It was night, so it obviously was very dark. There was a uh, near full moon, so when, when you went out of the clouds, you could see cumulus all around you. You could see the ocean below occasionally. Then you were back in clouds again. But yeah, it was obviously at night. And this was to be how long a leg? The leg from Hawaii to Tarawa was planned to be a little bit over 11 hours. Wow. And uh, the problems really occurred when I had just passed the Johnston Island Naval Base, mm -hmm. which, which I overflew. Back then, Johnston Island was still in use. It was uh, as a kind of a I guess top secret naval base. They also it was the place where they burned and destroyed the chemical weapons they wanted to get rid of. And it basically was just from what I had read up obviously on it, what is there in case there was an emergency and in case I had to divert there because it was really the only runway between uh, Hawaii and Tarawa. But it obviously was completely off limits for civilians and I never was in contact to anything. I had a very good HF radio in there, which was also a ham radio, but I worked together with an with an very good avionics technician. It actually got a permanent approval to have it permanently installed in my airplane. I got a field approval from the FSTO in, in Labok. And that had automatic tuner. It had a via running from the wingtip to above the cabin and then back to the tail. And our communication was absolutely not a problem up to that point. Up to that point when, when the lightning started causing interference. Up to that point when the lightning started <laughs> causing interference. <laughs> and that really happened totally out of the blue. I had flown out of a cumulus Storm scope was still showing nothing, and suddenly I flew in another one, and suddenly, without any warning, extremely heavy rain started. I mean, the heaviest rain I ever had flown through. It was like a submarine. It was, and all airplanes, all small airplanes are a little bit leaky, and the TB20, TB21, sorry, had those uh, gulving doors. So water started dripping through the leaky seals on, stop, on me from the ceiling. Oh, boy. And at the same time, the lightning started. And the lightning was just an incredible show. I mean, it was just constant, okay? It was, it made the night into day. And at that point, I just started to get naked panic. I said, I felt I had flown into a thunderstorm.
all what I have heard of thunderstorms, I'm dead. So what am I going to do? I panicked. You could have turned to do a 180, but you couldn't, could you? I could have. Well, what I actually did is I panicked and I did something which really would not have helped me at all. I tried to use my HF and I tried to reach the Oceanic Control Center in Oakland and declare an emergency and said I have to divert to Johnston Island because that is the closest one, which would really not have helped me because Johnston Island was uh, probably at that point about 100 miles from me. It was behind me and uh, it's at, at that point I would have been out of the weather anyway. I could just as well have, have flown back because I hadn't, uh, hadn't crossed the midway point. I could ah. have flown back to Hilo just as well. Understand. So there would have no reason, but I did not think clearly. And I started to turn and I was at the same time I was, I started to turn maybe about 30, 40 degrees. I, I could not think clearly at all. I thought I'm dead. I pictured uh, the turbulence at any moment now kicking in. Because it's the wings of. But the, the turbulent has turbulence had not. You hadn't encountered that. It was just the very, very heavy rain and the lightning show. That is absolutely correct. I hadn't encountered really any turbulence, not anything more. Just like I had written in that article, like what I had encountered in West Texas, like on a sunny day where you have all those thermals and people fly the gliders. And so there was really no turbulence to speak of, but I just had that thought in my mind, thunderstorm has extreme turbulence that will rip you apart. And I thought getting the fuel, getting the internal fuel tanks, the fuel drums for the ferry tanks, ripped off their moorings, the fuel pouring out. I had all those things in my mind, everything getting set on fire and basically dropping to the ocean in a fireball. So I was completely unable to think clearly just due to fear at that point because of all what I had heard from of thunderstorms. But you still were able to keep the airplane under control throughout this entire process. Even though you were panicked, you still kept the shiny side up. Right. And that is basically due to the autopilot, which was still engaged. And since there was no significant turbulence, the autopilot did everything just fine. I just started twisting it and the airplane just started to turn. And uh, at the same time, I tried frantically to reach uh, Oakland on the HF and declare an emergency, but there was nothing but static. With all those thunderstorms around, the HF just rattled and had static and uh, there was absolutely no way to get any HF uh, communication going. Those high frequencies, uh, high frequency rather than VHF are so much more susceptible uh, to uh, electrical interference. And uh, if it was close to you, yeah, the, uh, the static would have been uh, probably equal to the amount of noise of the rain pounding on your airplane. That's correct. There was absolutely no way to communicate. And that was actually good because after noticing I can't race anyone, my airplane has started to turn, I decided what to do. And at that point, I decided I had read, I had read that book from Captain Buck back then, which I thought was the best book I ever had read about weather flying. And he has flown through thunderstorms and survived it. 
all that that basically is what came back to me at that point and what he always had emphasized in this book that the shortest way through a thunderstorm is just straight straight through and you never once you're already in one you don't try to turn around because that will exponentially increase your chances of uh, losing control of the airplane and so I decided as well, I'm probably gonna go, I'm gonna die anyway, so I can as well die straight ahead. So I turned my autopilot back, back on course, and I just kept flying. And that rain and that lightning, it didn't last more than a few minutes. Maybe it, it obviously, if someone is such in a complete state of panic, it was like it, it took hours, but I'm sure it took less than 10 minutes and it probably was not more than five minutes. And uh, after that, you popped out into the clear and saw the moon again? After that, I popped out into the clear and saw the moon uh -huh. and the stars and everything looked fine. And through all that, I had nothing but light turbulence, not even moderate. Just like I said, like West Texas on a summer day, just like the little chop you have from the little thermals. but really nothing else to it, okay? Oh. So I was a little bit wet from the rain, but the airplane was no worse uh, for wear. And I wanted to know whether my HF had been permanently damaged, so I called Oakland, and now I was able to reach them with, uh, without a problem and with no static. And I called them just to make a pilot report that I have encountered a CB and there was no turbulence. And I mainly did sit to find out because I had hoped he had not heard my frantic emergency declaration <laughs> earlier. And luckily he didn't, he didn't hear anything. The static had just drowned it out. And that's good news. Let's take a break, Bernard. And when we come back, we'll discuss what you learned about flying from that right after this message from Avemco. Okay. Personal service, two words that are important to a consumer, and they're just as important to Avemco Insurance. The Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialists understand pilots. They'll answer your questions. They're empowered to solve problems, and they can even approve coverage based on your individual situation, not what some rule book says. Call Avemco at 800-338-8705, 800-338-8705, 338-8705 and learn about coverage personalized for what you fly and how you fly it. Now, back to iLaft. And we're back with Bernard Wolf, who on his flight from Hawaii to uh, Tarawa encountered some significant weather that uh, caused him some panic based on some learning that took place early in his flying career. But Bernard, you came through it unscathed. And what are some of the things you learned about flying from that? The first and foremost thing which I learned from that, and if I would take away only one thing, it is that, that panic is no solution. And that as long as you are alive and as long as uh, you still have remotely at least control over the airplane, there is hopefully, potentially, and hopefully a way out. And in this case, the way out was very easy. Just uh, keep everything as it is and just fly straight through. So I learned 
So that was the most important lesson I took away. That panic is no solution. And that what I had learned in my previous flying, uh, when I got my licenses, that uh, saying things on the side of the flight instructor, just avoid the thunderstorms because if you fly in one, you are dead, is probably not the best way of teaching because it shouldn't happen, but it could happen. And uh, so the thunderstorms are to be feared, but it is probably better to give the student a way out and to say, well, if you fly in one, just uh, slow down below maneuvering speed. Uh, don't force to hold altitude, just fly straight through. Don't try to turn, those kind of things. So that would have probably been a better lesson at that point. That in itself could be a sufficient lesson for this entire episode. What else do you have? Two read about and try to imagine beforehand a scenario what happens if you encounter a weather scenario that you had not planned for. And three, what I also learned later, but this was something uh, I just didn't know before, that those tropical thunderstorms you encounter, especially over the ocean, and I heard that from a 747 captain for Continental Airlines in Guam, that those thunderstorms have very little turbulence, usually in the lower half. The turbulence in those thunderstorms is more in the tops, and there you have icing and problem. But in the lower half of those thunderstorms, you mostly will occur, will, will, will encounter the downdrafts and the rain and the lightning, and that's what I did. It's different from thunderstorms over land. So this, the turbulence to be expected is considerably less. And Z-47 captain told me he has done a lot of uh, final approaches through, the, through this kind of weather in, obviously, in transport airplanes, but he has never encountered a significant problem with turbulence there. Good to hear. I do have one other question that I failed to ask you earlier. On this flight in 1994... Did you have a rudimentary GPS aboard? I did have a GPS on board. It was one of the first years, really, when GPS was available. But just like the Loran over the, uh, over the Atlantic, it did not give you complete coverage because there were not enough satellites up yet. And probably from... Uh, I would say from about six hours of flying, you probably had GPS coverage for about two hours, two out of six hours, one out of three hours overall. But that was usually enough uh, to let you make those little cross corrections which were needed. This has been an absolutely fascinating story, and I really thank you, Bernard Wolf, for being here on iLaft. Thank you very much. As we close out this episode of I Laughed, I'd like to invite you to subscribe. Go to www.flyingmag.com and select I Laughed Podcast from the drop-down menu. And tell your flying friends, too. I Laughed is available wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, 
fueling the passion for flight since 1927. I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.